HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. The great state of Wisconsin is home to the only master cheesemaking program outside of Switzerland. Learn more about Wisconsin's cheesemaking history at wisconsincheese.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're delighting in the creepy, the spooky, the skin-crawling aspects of food history and culture. Give yourself over to man's more hedonistic tendencies and you wouldn't be making it to the great beyond. The Sin Eater's job was to ensure that you did. In modern horror, audiences have been captivated by the isolation, mystery, and terror of rural life. And so one of these preparations is is actually taking oak bark, stuffing it into a cow skull, and burying that cow skull in a creek for a year. I would argue that their evil went hand in hand with their marketing strategy. I'm not saying they had an excuse, but in order to make bananas work, they were deluded. They had to do these terrible things. Listen to Meat and Three, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And when you think of Sichuan food, what do you think of? Hot or hot and fragrant? Maybe not the fragrant part, but it's always been known, at least here and on the Western side, for its heat and became wildly popular, almost as a, you know, for some people, how many, you know, dishes with hot red peppers can you eat? But something was missing. Some of the sophistication, possibly, of the flavors and the techniques. And that all changed when a particular writer came along and brought the secrets of Sichuan food to the Western shores. Fuchsia Dunlop first went to Chengdu, the capital of China's Sichuan province, to study at the university. And she ended up falling in love with the food. So much so that she became the first Westerner to train as a chef at the Sichuan Institute of Higher Cuisine in central China. Since then, she has spent two decades researching Chinese food and culinary culture, which is lucky history for us because she's shared so much of that knowledge with us um, and the cuisine, through the cuisine, through her wonderful books. Land of Plenty, Sichuan Cookery, her first in 2001, was acclaimed a classic 
And then came several others, Land of Fish and Rice, Revolutionary Chinese Cookbook, Every Grain of Rice, which I love, The Simple Chinese Home Cooking, and her memoir, Sharks, Fin, and Sichuan Pepper. And now, almost 20 years after her first Sichuan cookery book, Land of Plenty, she revisits the region where her culinary journey began with a new edition of the book called Simply, not so simple, but simply The Food of Sichuan. Welcome, Fuchsia. Hello. It's great to be here. I feel like I'm in the company of royalty here because for those who don't know, Land of Plenty was, it was acclaimed not only a classic, but by some to be one of the greatest cookbooks of all time. I think, my goodness, what an accolade. <laughs> That's quite an honor. So why did you feel it was necessary to do a new edition, a new book? Well, um, I now have 15 or 20 years more experience and I have continued to explore the byways of Sichuan, collect recipes, talk to chefs, and I had so much more material. Um, And also the cuisine itself has evolved. I mean, it's such a dynamic area in terms of food, very competitive restaurant industry, Ah. lots of new ideas and sort of old dishes being revived. And there was so much more. And I also wanted to... um, bring in some of the recipes from the regions of Sichuan because it's a huge province. It's the size of a European country, really. And so for this book, I traveled to southern Sichuan, to Zigong, the salt capital, to Lushan, where the giant Buddha is, and all these other areas which all have their own delicious dishes. And the other thing is that I felt I wanted to give the book a new lease of life with photographs. Yes, and the uh, the photographs are gorgeous. I'm so lucky. I've been working with this wonderful Japanese photographer in London and it's been a joy to cook all the dishes and have her shoot them. Well, and uh, Norton is your publisher here in the United States, or I guess it's just, is it um, international or just here in the United States that Norton is published? Yes, Norton, it's Bloomsbury in the UK. Bloomsbury, of course, right. Um, Well, you you know, you said at one point in the book, you said uh, you have to think of China, and you're talking just of Sichuan now, but you have to, that you said, you have to think of China as a whole continent and not just a country because regionality is so often lost. Well, now you're talking about just Sichuan having so many different regions. That's, that's, that's incredible. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the whole country is huge. And as, as you right, say, of more course. Continent, the country with different terrains, different terroir for food, different ingredients, different climates. And Sichuan itself, it's just, it's huge and it's diverse. And China is such a food focused culture that, um, you know, people are just interested in cooking and wherever there are new ingredients or different ingredients, they, they, they get used in different ways. Um, yeah, and I think that um, sometimes when we talk about Chinese food, we forget just how vast it is. And I always think it's worth remembering that um, Chinese people also make great generalizations about what they call Western food. I'm sure they Lumping do. everything <laughs> in together. <laughs> right. Well, now you're based in London now, actually, but how much time do you spend in China? Do you go back often or do you just have these couple few recent trips too? No, I mean, normally every year I'll do two long trips of more than a month at least, but I'm spending increasing amounts of time in China. And over the past year, I've deliberately been mostly in China, traveling around and exploring new culinary regions. Yeah, you just got to keep up on As fast as things change here, I'm sure it's the same there. And I want to touch on that and things that have evolved and things that have changed. Um, but with your cookbooks and the reason they were praised so much, I think, is that um, 
you know, a lot of people in the West always thought of Chinese cooking as, oh, there's just the, the ingredient list is always exhaustive and there's so much chopping. And you've been praised for your ability to explain a lot of the complexities of the flavors as well as the techniques and make that very clear. Um, in fact, that's, I mean, that's one of the first things that, that a lot of critics will say. She has done so much to explain the intricacies of the food and make it very clear to people outside of China. Have you changed um, any of the cooking directions at all as far as the techniques um, in the book? Um, not really changed, but I did retest every single recipe. Every single, and plus yes. you added another 70 or so. Yeah, no, did you a, not? An extra, another 70 new recipes. And yeah, I went okay. through all the old ones, including the sacred best recipes in the book, like Mapu Tofu and um, Fish Fragrant Eggplants. And I just wanted to get them even better. Tweak them a little bit, I huh? could, yes. Yeah. So it was more a question of just sort of refining and taking another look. And also because, you know, with dishes like Mapu Tofu, I have been discussing them now with chefs in Sichuan for about 25 years and I have lots of new tips. And Mapo Tofu is known everywhere. You know, you go in and if there's one thing you know to order, it's Mapo Tofu. Yeah, and it's extraordinary because when the first edition was published, or it, wasn't well known. Yeah, it wasn't no, well known. It wasn't well known. And now it's just a sign of how how Sichuan food has become widely recognized, that Mapo Tofu is, is on everyone's lips. That's right. And unbelievable. Um, it it's it was it's daunting to a lot of people um, taking their you know taking a trip to China to just as a, a tourist to visit, and here you went to study and then ended up staying. Can you go through describe a little bit um, your your the intensity of that first introduction to Sichuan cuisine and your subsequent culinary journey? Well, I suppose that the first time I, I really got in, interested in Sichuanese cuisine was in 1993. And I visited the capital Chengdu on the way out of Lhasa, Tibet, where I'd been backpacking for a few <laughs> weeks. Um, and I looked up a, a musician, an acquaintance who I'd met in London, actually, and he and his wife took me around Chengdu for a few days. And we just ate such radiantly lovely and delicious food over those days. And it was so fresh and colourful and the flavours were unlike anything I tasted in Chinese restaurants in England, which at that time, like American Chinese restaurants, were mainly Cantonese. Mm -hmm. And um, something happened on that trip. And I just, sitting in a tea house in the sunshine on my last day, I just thought, I'm going to come back here and live. And then I applied for a scholarship and I did come back. And it was everything I'd hoped and more. And I, I just spent this magical year initially at the university. And, you know, just outside the university, there was a market with all this fresh produce and little snack sellers and, you know, um, an old couple who made guokwe, these delicious, crisp, crunchy, fragrant pastries with a little minced meat and Sichuan pepper mm. and noodle shops. And so even though my student friends and I, we were all you know, on fairly low budgets. But in these little restaurants around the university, we just ate like emperors. And um, I became curious about, I'd always loved cooking and I just wanted to know more about the food. And so I started um, going to the owners of the restaurants that I liked and saying, please, can I come and study in your kitchen? Mm. <laughs> and um, 
And by they, then you had learned some Chinese. Yes, <laughs> right. yes. Yeah, and, and then, and also it was a very sort of interesting time to be in China because the country was just opening up and there weren't many foreigners. And so we were hugely exotic and fascinating to local people because they'd never interacted with, with foreigners mostly. And so this strange foreign woman coming and saying, can I study in your kitchen? People <laughs> thought this was rather entertaining <laughs> prospect. You want to cook? And, right? <laughs> and they often said yes. So that's how it wow. began, really. Wow. Yeah. So then you then ultimately you, you were um, accepted into the, the culinary school. How did you... I mean, did you really have to prepare yourself other than just learning these dishes from the restaurants? You took some outside classes a little bit, right? I mean, you couldn't yeah. just walk in there and go to this exalted <laughs> well, know, tower of learning. Um, a German classmate and I heard that there was a famous cooking school in Sichuan, and he loved cooking too. And so we just cycled off there, um, over there one afternoon and asked to speak to the principal and said, please, can we study here? <laughs> and after a long discussion and many cups of tea, they agreed to give us some private classes, I think twice a week over a month or two or something like that. And um, it was so interesting to start understanding how these dishes that I'd been eating very happily for some time were made and the whole different grammar of Chinese and Sichuanese cuisine, all the different basic processes and knife skills. And that was my first glimpse of it. And then after I finished at the university, I just popped into the cooking school to say hello. And they said, we have a professional chef's training course starting. Why don't you join in? Oh, wow. And so I just, of course, said yes. And they immediately, I paid my fees. They gave me a cleaver and some chef's whites. And that was it. <laughs> and then you were off, right? Yeah. Well, you were in the right place for Chinese food because uh, the Chinese saying is China is the place for food. But Sichuan is the place for flavor. Yes. So there you are. <laughs> um, what, in your opinion, are some of the basic standouts of those flavors that represent Sichuan cuisine? Well, I suppose most typical are what they call fuhuwei, which is fuhuwei, which is a complex, layered flavors. So it's not just all wham bam hot and numbing, right. like the stereotype. Um, but there are all these very subtle and um, clever combinations of flavours. And I think my favourite amongst them is yuxiangwei, fish fragrant flavour. Um, and one of my favourite dishes in the book is fish, fish fragrant eggplants, which everyone adores. And this is a combination of pickled Sichuanese chilies, which are not that hot, mm -hmm. but fruity and fragrant and delicious, a little bit spicy, with ginger, garlic and scallion and a bit of sweet and sour. So that's a sort of gentle, seductive, spicy flavor and utterly delicious. It's interesting because uh, the, some of the ingredients that are so integral to the cuisine of Sichuan were really latecomers to China, such as garlic and, and peppers, chili peppers. Yeah, well, the chili, um, interestingly, so it only came from the Americas and was first seen in China sort of around the late 16th century, but in the coastal provinces. And it didn't become established as a crop in Sichuan until the late, um, late 18th and early 19th century. Mm. Um, so the, there's really only you know, a couple of hundred years of, of the chili in Sichuan. Right, compared to, the, you know, the other, the, the basic cuisine, which is, you know, thousands of years old yeah, yeah right but it fitted in very well because um, in the Sichuan region climate is very damp and muggy so according to Chinese um, 
the traditional medicinal law, you have to eat drying heating spices to drive out this unhealthy dampness. So long before people had the chili, they were eating ginger, Sichuan pepper, and other heating spices. So the chili, when it came to China, just fitted perfectly in with their view of the world and the right, body. Right. Well, and garlic was a newcomer too. It's only been around for about 2,000 years, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting with China, as old as it is, you know, through the different dynasties. And then the trade route opened during the Han Dynasty and and boom, new ingredients appeared, right? Yeah, I mean, that's one thing that's fascinating about China. So there are some foods which have a remarkably ancient history, like the black beans in black bean sauce, fermented black soybeans. I have seen those beans in a museum excavated from a tomb that dates back about 2,200 years. And they look the same as the black beans you can buy in a Chinese supermarket today. So that is very ancient. But then, and as you said, the, or the ancient Chinese pepper is Sichuan pepper. So when people say pepper in Chinese, jiao, originally that meant Sichuan pepper. The, the little peppercorns that will numb your numb yes. your mouth and tongue, right? And, and then in the Han Dynasty, um, you started getting the regular pepper that we know as pepper coming in along the land routes, along the Silk Road. And then that was named hu jiao, um, barbarian pepper, uh-huh. because it came from outside. Mm, right. right. Uh, anything, anything coming from the outside was was considered was called barbarian. Well, because those who, who came through, right? They yes, through. yeah. Uh, well, in Sichuan, they still call the chili pepper. They call it hai jiao, which means um, sea pepper, because it oh, came, from, it came over from over the sea. From huh? overseas, right? Interesting. Uh, and the well, the Sichuan peppercorns have such a such a long history, and. And so many different anecdotes uh, attached to them as well, which, which you describe beautifully in the book. Well, something about rubbing, rub a, a peppercorn, Sichuan peppercorn on your palm. You can tell if you've rubbed it or not because... You can smell it through your hand. Smell it all they, the way through the other side of your hand. That's okay. what they say about uh-huh. the finest Sichuan yeah. pepper. And what I loved was, oh, then the, the mud walls... Um, can you talk about yeah talk about some of those anecdotes I think that's yeah, great about the peppercorns because that's what is so unique about the Sichuan cuisine yeah. so, so um, it's a um, Sichuan pepper is a medicinal spice and a sort of fragrance as well and also a, a symbol of fertility and so it was mixed in with the mud on the walls of the um, um, the dwellings of imperial concubines um, about 2,000 years ago. And so their, their houses were known as jiaofang, pepper, pepper houses. <laughs> um, and still, I mean, I don't know whether it's still, but when I wrote the book, I mean, people would still throw Sichuan pepper over brides and grooms at rural weddings. Not rice, but Sichuan peppercorns. Right? <laughs> That's interesting. I love that. I can just visualize that, right? Um, in the... Uh, Meat. Meat is something that um, that has evolved over the centuries, uh, has it not, as far as the um, amount of meat and what meat is eaten a lot in China, in, well, in, all over China, but particularly in the Sichuan cuisine? Yeah, well, I mean, when Chinese people say meat, ro, they mean pork unless otherwise specified. Huh. Um, and that is the main meat. And, and most rural households would keep a pig, which would feed on household scraps and then would be fattened up for the Chinese New Year and then sort of salted down and made into bacon or some kind of cured pork. Um, that, of course, um, there are also quite a lot of Chinese Muslims and they would eat, um, you know, uh, sheep meat, mutton or beef rather than pork. But for most Chinese, pork is the principal meat. Um, but until quite recently, it was... 
more of a luxury. So many rural people would eat very little meat and um, the diet would be dominated by grains and vegetables with, of course, the protein-rich soybean in many forms as tofu, as soy sauce, fermented beans, fermented tofu, um, eaten with their rice or, or noodles in the north. Um, and so in the distant past, actually, the rich in China were known as rushi, meat eaters. Meat eaters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then um, in recent years, I mean, I suppose like people all over the world, there's been you know cheaper meat and more available meat. And um, one of the great joys of China in the post-reform period, after you know decades of great hardship, was that meat was readily available. And so now the proportion of meat in people's diets is rising fast, although it's still much less than, than that of Americans, for example. Hmm. One of the great things about Chinese cuisine is that um, there's it's so delicious and there's such an emphasis on creating flavors and umami flavors from things like soybeans and um you know salted and dried vegetables and fish and and so on that actually you can eat much less meat without sacrificing any flavor so i think it's um chinese cuisine is a real model for people in the west who for health reasons and environmental reasons and economic reasons want to eat less meat while still really enjoying their food well, in umami, they call umami xian wei. Yes, xian. Yes, xian. Yeah, and the fl- the basic flavors. It's I, I think it's interesting. You, you talk about the basic basic flavors or sensations. We call we call flavors or tastes and the sensations, which makes sense. The salty, the sweet, the bitter, the sour, and the heat. Heat has its own designation of a yeah. as a sensation. So That's in ancient great. China and numbness. There were yeah in ancient China there were five flavors like the five elements and the five directions. All these fives in Chinese culture and cosmology, um, and the five flavors are not just um, salty, sour, sour, um, bitter, and sweet, but also xin or la, which means pungent or spicy. And in Sichuan, of course, you also have ma, which is the numbing, tingling t- taste of Sichuan peppercorn. Um, and the same word ma means pins and needles and anesthesia. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. If anyone, if you've ever held a Sichuan peppercorn on your tongue, you know, or just eaten a dish that was highly flavored with it. But it's also very fragrant, the 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 um, Sichuan peppers. Yes, I mean, Sichuan pepper is actually, it's not related botanically to pe- to pepper or to the chili. It's re- in the citrus family. And the best Sichuan pepper has the most incredible um, sort of, sometimes it smells like kumquat peel, very fresh and high in citrusy. And also green Sichuan pepper, which is another variety that's become very popular in the last couple of decades, can be really like lime, zesty and and beautiful and and that's the best kind of pepper which is not always easy to find outside the country the green ones well for a while that was there was a problem here in this in this country with um the importation of the Sichuan peppercorns everything's fine now I don't know what I forget what the oh it was because um it was thought that there was a possibility that it could carry citrus canker which was an illness that could affect you know the citrus crop in, in America right but now I think the regulations have changed and well, they sure have. If you see the the bags of them available in the you know in the street stalls in the markets throughout Chinatown, yeah. definitely have. Um, I like how they the that you um, you wrote about how the flavor of the Sichuan cuisine is just described as hot and fragrant. Yes, that's nice. Yeah, and you mentioned that the when meat was not and is not that that readily available. Of course, they supplement it with vegetables and grains. And your book, Land of Plenty, you know, talks about this is such an agricultural 
breadbasket, if yeah. you will. So, the... Yeah, I mean, Sichuan has been known since ancient time as Tianfu Zhuguo, the land of plenty, because it has a very easy climate, plenty of rain, very fertile soil. So it is one of the most important agricultural regions of China. And um, there, are, there are so many different vegetables, like gorgeous greens in every season, lots of different varieties, lots of different members of the brassica and allium ah. family. So sort of cabbagey vegetables, but many very tender, delicate greens, which are wonderful stir-fried or in soups. And the alliums, all those sort of garlicky, oniony flavours. Um, and, you know, quite a lot of wild plants as well, kinds of vetch and zergen, which is a sort of quite sour, sometimes called Chinese watercress, with a very yes. interesting yeah. flavour. Um, so that is one of the reasons why, um, you know, Sichuanese vegetable cooking is so delicious. And often you, you find a whole wok full of vegetables cooked with a little bit of meat to give it flavour. But, um, you know, a piece of meat that would feed one American for dinner can be cut up and stir-fried with vegetables and can be a good meal for a family of four already <laughs> with rice and another vegetable. Yeah, so more of a flavoring agent, as you as you yes. mentioned in the book, rather than a, you know, the main center of the plate, right? Uh, what I would like to talk about um, is some of the history of Chinese cuisine and, and, the, and the culture, the culinary culture. But we're going to take a short break first and then, so think about that, some of the history of the culinary culture and maybe how it's changed. So stay with us, and we'll be talking more with Fuchsia Dunlap when we come back. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that 90% of Wisconsin's milk is made into cheese? And this is not just any milk. When Swiss, German, and Italian cheesemakers first settled into Wisconsin, they chose their new home because of the special terroir of the region. Its soil and water are nurtured by the goodness of glacial sediment, and those elements lend themselves to the very best milk. Today, Wisconsin produces 25% of all cheeses made in the U.S., and Wisconsin cheeses have won more awards than any other state or country in the world. How do they do it? Wisconsin cheesemakers combine their heritage and tradition with nonstop innovation. They were the first state to establish cheese grade standards and the first to require that every cheese plant be overseen by a licensed cheesemaker. Wisconsin is the only place outside of Europe where one can pursue an elite master cheesemaker certification. All of these impeccably high standards mean Wisconsin produces more than 48% of the nation's specialty cheese. Join Heritage Radio Network on Monday, November 11th for a raucous feast to toast a decade of food radio. Our 10th anniversary Bacchanal is a rare gathering of your favorite chefs, mixologists, storytellers, thought leaders, and culinary masterminds. We'll salute the inductees of the newly minted HRN Hall of Fame, who embody our mission to further equity, sustainability, and deliciousness. Join us to explore the beautiful Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, 
where you'll taste and imbibe to your heart's content. And bid on once-in-a-lifetime experiences and tasty gifts for any budget at our silent auction. Join the party. Tickets are available now at heritageradionetwork.org gala. We're back, and I'm speaking with Fuchsia Dunlap. She is uh, considered the authority, I guess we can say, on yes, definitely, on Sichuan cuisine. And uh, her new book that just came out is called Food of Sichuan. And um, I had asked you before the break, Fuchsia, that I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the history of the culinary customs. I mean, we've been talking about it, but specifically... um, I guess specifically, I still wanted to focus on on some of the meat because, like, you had written about lamb and goat, and that being newer to the, yeah, from the I don't know when, but um, when the Mongolians took over, uh, that's well, it's kind of region. regional because um, you know around particularly the north of China, you have all these wide grasslands and um, nomadic cultures like the Mong- Mongols and um, other nomadic groups, and they would eat um, sheep meat and um, beef, and of course the Tibetans eat yak meat as well. Right. So you have these other meats on the fringes of China, but people in the south um, prefer pork, and they tend to see um, sheep meat as having what they call a shanwei, a rather sort of muttony taste, which is a bit strong and overpowering, and which you have to subdue by blanching and marinating to take away the harshness of its yeah. flavour. Yeah. So in northern China, they eat far more of these meats than they do in Sichuan. Hmm, interesting. Well, you've written that the Chinese probably have the most adventurous approach to meat eating that the world has ever seen. From ancient gastronomic texts to modern culinary encyclopedias, they read like a Noah's Ark. Okay, what do you mean by that and what's in there? <laughs> oh, well, I mean, just, uh, you know, bear's paw is a legendary imperial delicacy. In Yunnan, they used to eat elephant's trunks. I mean, all these things have disappeared <laughs> yeah, now. Right. Um, but certainly um, there are not sort of cultural or psychological barriers to eating unusual meats. So whereas most people, if they eat meat at all, it's just going to be the obvious, you know, pork and chicken <laughs> and in the north, um, lamb or mutton. Um, but yes, very adventurous, but also in terms of which parts you eat of the animal. Right. I was going to say they, they had nothing on our um, movement in your in London and as well as... Uh, nose to tail. Said, nose to tail eating, right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's their method of using, you're going to kill an animal, you eat the whole thing. Yeah, right? and I think that, you know, it's the same in any agrarian culture. I mean, it was the same in Europe, that if you killed a pig, you would make the most of it. But in China, you see, they have this additional um, this additional consideration, which is they really appreciate texture in food. So once you open your mind and your palate to the possibilities of texture, there are all kinds of other parts that other people would throw away that become delicious and interesting. So, for example, in Sichuan hot pot, um, people love dipping into their hot pot, scalding in the fiery broth, all these kind of rubbery and slithery offal ingredients, most famously tripe, tripe right. ox tripe. But also one favourite ingredient in Sichuan is goose intestines, um, which has no flavour, but has a lovely slithery crisp. Slippery. Texture, yes. <laughs> Slippery flavour. And also, even more dramatic, pig's aorta. So that very thick blood vessel. Um, and it's utterly rubbery and, you know, really 
crunchy and quite a struggle to eat it. But um, in China, people really savour the adventure of these textures in their mouths. And when I first went to China, this is what I found most baffling. Like I ate all these rubbery delicacies without enjoying them or understanding them just to be polite. Mm -hmm. And then after a certain point, I just realized that I was ordering them myself and that I had really started to enjoy the sensations of kogan mouthfeel. And, um, and I would say that that's definitely part of my appreciation of food now, particularly. Mm. And of course, once you appreciate texture and mouthfeel, there are all kinds of parts, yes, that w just don't make any sense without that understanding of texture. And so that's one of the reasons why the Chinese are so adventurous. Another thing that is a great delicacy in China is duck tongues. And from a Western point of view, it's a tiny thing. You know, it's fiddly and it's just got a little bone and not really any meat. But in China, there's this sort of, it's a pleasure to use your tongue and teeth to grapple to with it and sort of it. take off the, you know, the, the edible bits and to take out the bones. And it's part of the fun of eating. Mm. And there's also a psychological aspect, which is, you know, with a duck, um, plenty of meat. Anyone can eat a bit of duck meat. But the tongue, there's only one little tongue and it's like the prize. So if you have a whole plate of duck tongues, you're privileged to have the best bit of a whole number of ducks. And only very rich people could have afforded this in the past. I was at a Chinese market here um, not long ago and passed by in the freezer compartment a package at just lined up with lots of I said, oh my God, how many ducks are in here? All those duck tongues. Yes. That was a whole flock of, of ducks there. That well, was... well, I once cooked about 300 duck tongues for a oh, presentation at a conference in Oxford about texture and yeah. <laughs> it just it, it really did surprise me. I mean, that they were so many in one, you know, in one package. I guess I'd never really thought about, A, how tiny they were, <laughs> B, that... Yeah, well, if you're going to feed a lot of people the same thing, you're going to have several of them. Right? Yeah, but I think that's one, one of the sort of Western mistakes about Chinese food is there was this traditional view that people ate things like duck tongues but out of desperation and poverty. But it's not true because, you know, the richest people want to eat the geese, goose feet and right. duck tongues because they're sought after. Well, have, have, some of, have some of these customs changed a bit? You talked a lot about... Um, you're shaking your head no, yes. Oh, yeah. No, no, I'm listening. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, you have talked about, oh, a little piece about initially thinking about some of the cruelty at the markets of live animals being eviscerated for, you know, for sale. Yes, that was in my yeah. memoir, Sharksville and Sichuan Pepper. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's one of the things that I found shocking at first as a Westerner, used to shopping in, you know, markets or supermarkets where everything was packaged up. And suddenly here were live creatures being slaughtered in front of me for dinner. Um, but I suppose I came to feel that the Chinese approach was just more honest, really. I mean, if you're eating meat, this is what it involves. And I think that people in modern Western societies are very cut off from the realities of what meat means. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. Know where your food comes from. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Uh, you know, we, as I said earlier, that it's... Uh, Sichuan, you know, the, the hot and spicy flavors are something that is well known for Sichuan food. And it did become wildly popular, at least in some of the metropolitan areas here in the United States in the in the late 60s and early 70s. But it, it wasn't really the true cuisine. You know, there were some dishes and mostly, as you said, a lot of flash in the pan meat, you know, stir fried dishes with lots of hot peppers. Um, and then you you kind of made people aware of the sophisticated cooking techniques in a lot of the dishes as well as the, the sophisticated flavors. 
then it became wildly popular throughout the rest of the world. What do you attribute to that, other than your wonderful books, of course? <laughs> I can't really claim much credit. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that um, the thing is that from the 90s, Sichuanese food became wildly popular in China. It was everyone's favourite cuisine, particularly with young people. So Sichuan restaurants started opening all over China. And what's happened is that, you know, the old pattern of immigration to America was sort of very Cantonese-dominated, But um, since the opening up of China in the 90s, you've got people from other parts of China, from all over China, coming here to study, to live, to do business. And they want to eat the kind of food they like and that they like at home. And that, since the 90s, has been Sichuanese food. And so I think that's really one of the really interesting things that a lot of the early Chinese restaurants in America were very much tailored to white American tastes, Now they don't have to. So you've got Chinese food on Chinese terms, particularly in big metropolitan areas, you know, like Flushing, like um, San Gabriel Valley in in L.A., that um, there's a big customer base of Chinese people. So it doesn't have to be mediated and toned down. It's real Chinese food. Um, So I think that's a case of just, you know, Chinese culinary fashions appearing in places like America with Chinese populations. And the other thing is that Sichuanese food is so stimulating and exciting. Um, It has these dazzling uh, variety of flavours. You know, you were saying earlier that one thing I always stress is that it's not just hot and spicy. And in Sichuan, they say, each dish has its own style and a hundred dishes have a hundred different flavours. So any good Chinese meal is always a balance of strong flavors and light flavors and dry things and soupy wet things, you know, a contra, a, you know, a harmony of opposites, if you like. Mm-hmm. But in Sichuan, the highs are very electrifying because of all this zinging spice. Um, so it's a very stimulating cuisine. And I think in a crowded marketplace, um, it stands out as being very exciting still, even when competing with Japanese, Korean and Mexican and everything else that's out there. Yeah. Uh, over the years, have you seen what what major changes, have, if any, have you seen? Um, you just mentioned the markets. Have you seen an increase in the street markets? or No, no, actually much less. Because Ooh. with the modernization of Chinese cities, the whole urban landscape has changed. So when I lived in Chengdu, it was a city of old winding lanes and wooden courtyard houses. And most of that's gone now. And um, there's also been an attempt to sort of clean up the streets and get rid of street traders and markets. So there are more people shopping in supermarkets and some markets going indoors and so on. So there are still street markets, but not as many as there used to be. Um, So that is certainly one change. Um, And also, you know, it's a very dynamic cuisine and it's always responding to outside influences. You know, the chili is the most famous example. But in recent years, um, suddenly okra has been very popular and ubiquitous in Sichuan. And that was unheard of a few years Uh ago. Um, So these changes are all very interesting. But one thing I do regret is that the younger generation are not learning to cook in the same way as their well, parents. That, that translates to every country I can think of. Yeah, <laughs> but it's so tragic because, you know, the elder generation in Chengdu, they could all cook all these traditional dishes, make their own pickles, cure their own winter meats. And that's well, maybe really they'll have, you know, this, this whole 
uh, return to the land that we're we're seeing in um, in the West here of people wanting to grow their own food. Pickling pickling became so popular once again, and, and um, yeah, you know, the fermentation, I mean, natural fermentations. And- I have met a few young people who are going back into family businesses, making artisanal fermented tofu <laughs> and century eggs and things like that. So I hope so because it's everything such old a- is new again. It comes around. Yeah. Right? Um, Something I don't know where I picked up something either in your book or one of your um, articles that, um, and you mentioned foreign influences, the chili, and then now okra. But are there foreign influences that um, that the culture feels is a threat to the Sichuan identity? No, I mean that's one thing about Sichuan that it's such an open and welcoming culture and region and the Sichuanese always say about their own cuisine and culture that it's very baorong it's very inclusive and open-minded and tolerant mm. so um, peop- it's very much part of the identity of the Sichuanese I think to be open and the other thing is that most of the population of today's Sichuan were immigrants who came like a few hundred years ago from other parts of China. So it, it, it's always been a sort of melting pot of different influences, and that's very much true today as well. And I think foreigners like me, but since then, in the decades since, um, you know, a lot of foreigners who go to Sichuan just fall in love with it and they think it's a great place and they, it's a nice place to live and Chengdu has a particular charm and magic to its atmosphere although it's physically very different from the city that I knew in the 90s. Oh, I'm sure. So there are two major cities in uh, many different regions, right? But the two major cities are... uh, Well, Chengdu is the regional capital, Capital. um, which is famous for its sort of idle, pleasure-loving life and Uh its tea houses and, of course, its food. Um, And then Chongqing, which is now officially a separate municipality. Oh, but when I was living there, it was still part of Sichuan, and it's definitely still part of the, the great Sichuan cuisine. But um, Chongqing is a mountain city and a busy river port, and life there was tougher with this insufferable heat and mugginess. And so people in Chongqing eat even more chilies and Sichuan pepper than people mm. in the rest of China and um, than, than in, in the rest of Sichuan. And it's famous, of course, for its hot pot, you know, when you have a bubbling cauldron of chilies and Sichuan pepper. Wow. wow. It is just so wonderful. And the and as I said, the, the photographs in the book are beautiful. So if, if you're interested in discovering more about the food of Sichuan, well, there's a book called The Food of Sichuan by James Beard, award-winning um, author, Fuchsia Dunlop. Fuchsia, thank you so much. It's been so enlightening to hear all these tales and I just and I can't wait to crack open the book and read more thank and, you so much uh, it's and, been lovely coming along and again yes yeah, it's, it's it's just making me hungry so <laughs> I have to say definitely and thank you for listening this again has been a taste of the past a taste of the past is powered by simplecast thanks for listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? 
Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.